Well, we are in a brand new series, and we're going to begin this series with what may be the most outrageous story in all of ancient literature, certainly the most outrageous story in the Bible, and uh, it's found in the Old Testament. The Old Testament uh, is a bit long, it's a bit complicated, so if you get lost like halfway through, or you drift off, or you're worried about your crockpot or something down there, uh, you can go online, check it out, listen. If you like, know somebody who's like, oh, I need to, uh, I need to share this with them, uh, it, that is available on our website or on our podcast. Now, most of this series comes from the Old Testament book of Judges. The book of Judges. And the book of Judges is a narrative of a part of ancient Israel history that took place between the time that they moved into the promised land under Joshua. Remember Moses like brought him out of Egypt. Uh, he dies. Uh, they, Joshua takes over leadership. And uh, Joshua takes him into the promised land. They get settled. And then Joshua dies. And then about 330 years later, uh, Israel becomes a monarchy under uh, King David. David, first King Saul and then King David. So the period of Judges takes place during the time between, like when after Joshua died and uh, when they became a monarchy. And during this time, it was like a commonwealth. It was like kind of like the uh, or 13 original colonies without a central government. They had a common ancestry and a common religion and a common language, but they were 12 distinct tribes. And if you know anything about Bible history, you'll know how this happened. Like you had Abraham, who had a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob, who had 12, what, sons, right? 12 sons. Each one of those sons grew up basically to be their own little tribe, their own little nation. So during the book of Judges, you've got these 12 tribes inhabiting the promised land, and there is no king, okay? Because the idea is that God is supposed to be their king. And this is how it was supposed to work. God's king, and he's given them his law, and they're just supposed to obey the law. And then God would raise up these judges every once in a while. And these judges, uh, that's why the book is called Judges, okay? Judges would lead, um, but they weren't like kings, okay? They, their authority, they would distribute the law and make sure uh, uh, it got followed, and in some cases, to deliver the nation from their enemies. Because here's what happened. The nation, like uh, the nation that had uh, just they abandoned God's law. They got into the land. The nation of Israel during this period has something in common with you. They didn't like to be told what to do, right? Nobody likes to be told what to do. And besides, uh, like the law, it was like written somewhere and it was kind of far away and there was no real government. And, and so basically everybody just did what they wanted to do, which means they would go through this cycle there where they would disobey God and uh, they would disobey God's law, and it would result in disaster. And then they would cry out to God for help, and God would send a deliverer. And then they would go back, and they would disobey again. And then there would be a disaster, and they'd cry out for help, and then God would send help and deliver them. And then they would go, hey, I'm ne we're never going to do that again. Okay, we're never doing that again. Sound a little bit familiar to anybody? Like, here's the interesting thing about the book of Judges, and this is something we've all got in common. At some point in your life, you disobey. You disobey uh, something. Like you either disobey the religious law that you kind of grew up with, or you disobey your parents for sure. Like, uh, you disobeyed the, your conscience, right? You disobey your own. You know, it's like, uh, your conscience said, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And you did it anyway. And after a time, there was a disaster. And it was like, oh my gosh, you know, I got myself into this mess. And it was like, hey, I, I need help. Yeah, I need help. And somebody came. Somebody came into your life, gave you a break, gave you gave you a second chance, you know, bailed you out or paid a fine or something. Somebody helped you. Somebody came into your life and you said, I'll never do that again, right? I'll never, ever go back. And you didn't. 
for about a week. And then, you know, and then you went through that over and over and over. In the book, so the book of Judges is about a nation that for 330 years just got in trouble and got delivered and got in trouble and got delivered and got in trouble and got delivered. And there was just so much about this book that reflects, in some ways, all of our lives. But at the very end of the book of Judges is this outrageous, outrageous story. And what we're going to do is I'm going to tell you the story. I'm going to put a few verses up on the screen here. And it's long and it's complicated. And I'm going to try to make it simple. But this book of Judges just ends with this crazy story. And it reflects just how bad things had gotten uh, in the nation of Israel. And it reflects what happens to a group of people or a community or in a nation or to an individual when they decide, you know what, I'm just going to do what I want to do. I'm just going to do what I think is right. And you don't tell me what you, you know, what's, what's right. You, you know, what's right for me may not be right for you. And what's right for you may not be right for me. So just mind your own business. And so for 330 years in the nation of Israel, that's just kind of how they went. And it was so up and down and up and down and up and down. And so the whole, the whole thing kind of devolves into this kind of cesspool of a story that is just so horrible, it's kind of hard to believe. And yet, it's where the nation went. And it's how the book of Judges ends. So I want to tell you that story. So remember, the nation is kind of split into these 12 tribes. And each of these tribes has tens of thousands and some people think maybe hundreds of thousands of people. And they all live in different parts of what we would consider the Holy Land today. So the story begins like this. There was a Levite who lived in, in Ephraim. And he was Levite, so uh, he was part of the tribe of Levi. And we don't know his name, but this Levite got himself a girlfriend. Okay, so throughout the story, she is referred to as a concubine, and she's from uh, the, the city of Bethlehem. So a concubine was kind of like this um, girlfriend, servant, pseudo-wife, fill-in-the-blank kind of a deal, right? It, just, like, she was, it was kind of this legal thing, but not really. You know, it, was sort of, it was against the tr traditions and the customs of the Israelites, for sure. The whole idea of having a concubine was something that came to them from the Canaanites, um, and uh, they were supposed to stay away from this kind of stuff. We're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. So this guy goes from Ephraim in, in, in Judea down to Bethlehem. Uh, and he finds this woman. And he brings her back with him. And they, they live together for a while. And she's unfaithful to him. And he finds out. And then she finds out that he finds out. And so, so she hits the road. She heads back to Bethlehem, moves back in with her family. Well, some time goes by, and we, we don't know if he just like kind of got over being angry or if he you know like just got lonely, but he decides, you know what, i got to go get my concubine. So he travels way south through the area uh, where the tribe of Benjamin was, and down uh, to Bethlehem, and he shows up at her father's house, and he says, hey, I've come to get my woman, you know, your daughter. And the father, he's not real excited about this. So they get into this kind of weird deal, like you should read your Bible, okay? Like this dad, who's not really a father-in-law, but you know, what do you call them? Concubine-in-law or something? Like, the Bible talks about father-in-law, but, you know, it's like we don't know that they were married, so this is kind of weird deal. So the concubine's father, like, he keeps this guy up late at night drinking. And they drink and drink and drink, and uh, the guy wakes up the next morning with such a hangover, you know, he can't see straight until noon, you know, and he's like, hey, you know, we got to get back to Ephraim. And the father-in-law is like, ah, no, it's too late. You know, you don't want to start a journey this late in the day. So that night they stay up drinking again. The guy wakes up with a hangover, you know, he can't go. It's noon. Hey, we need to go. And the father-in-law is like, nah, it's too late. You know, you, you just need to stay. And this goes on for day after day after day after day after day. And finally, the Levite is like, okay, we've got to go. 
So he loads up and he's got two donkeys with him and a male servant. So you got the Levite, two donkeys, the male servant, and the concubine. And they leave Bethlehem and now they're going to travel back up to Ephraim and kind of get this relationship to work out. So they're on this journey, but they leave so late in the day, the sun starts to go down and they end up showing up at the gates of a town called Gibeah at nightfall. Okay, Gibeah is in the area where the tribe of Benjamin is. So he goes to the town square. And the way things worked back then were like the laws of hospitality were such you, that if you were a stranger, you went to the town square, which was kind of usually near the gate. And uh, it was like where everybody would gather. There was usually a well there. Because, um, you know, th- these aren't big cities. There's no motels or hotels or, you know, restaurants or anything like that. So what you're supposed to do if you're a stranger, you show up, you go to the town square, and generally... You know, like somebody would show up and somebody would go, hey, you know, and see you out there. They'd introduce themselves and invite you to their home, especially if you're an Israelite, okay? Yeah, he, he's not a Benjamite, but he's a Levite. He's, he is an Israelite. Well, nobody shows up. and In fact, everybody just kind of ignores him. They, they look at him strange, you know, kind of go back into their own homes. So the sun is set and they're out there in the middle of the town. Nobody's saying uh, anything to them. Nobody's invited them in. And as the night goes on, a man comes into the city gates, headed for his home, and he sees him in the town square, introduces himself, and they discover that this is a man who used to live in Ephraim, uh, but now he lives in Gibeah. So the man says to the Levite, hey, well, come home with me, you know, you can spend the night with me. So now you got the Levite, the concubine, the servant, the two donkeys, and this guy from Gibeah who has shown hospitality. Any questions? Like, I know, it's crazy. With me so far? Because this is where the story starts to get weird. Okay? The author tells us that late in the evening, after they had finished eating and drinking, that the house is surrounded by, the scripture calls them wicked men, and they begin banging on the door, and they say to the man living there, bring out the man who came to your house so that we can... Okay? Now, this was not an issue so much of gratification as it was humiliation. Oftentimes, uh, Canaanite men would basically do this to humiliate another man. And in fact, this carried on into Greek culture. And even in the first century, the Romans like would encounter Druids and uh, other different people in the world. And this was kind of a form of male humiliation. So they're pounding at the door going like, hey, we don't like strangers. We don't like guests. Nobody invited them in, you know, and we want them to leave. And we're going to teach him a lesson. And when he leaves, he'll tell people, oh, don't go to Gibeah. <laughs> you know, they are not hospitable and they don't like strangers. Well, the owner of the house went outside and said to them, no, my friends, don't be so vile since this man is my guest. You know, the laws of hospitality, or like he's in my home now, I'm his protector, I'm, I'm responsible for him, this man's my guest. Don't do this outrageous thing. So at this point, you know, like the homeowner there in Gibeah, he's kind of the hero. He's like, hey, you know, guys, stay away, stay away. You know, he's under my protection. Don't come into my house. And then the story gets even stranger. He says, look, here's my virgin daughter and this guy's concubine and I will bring them out to you now and you can use them and do with them whatever you wish. Now, he says, but the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine, sent her outside to them and they, and I won't even put up the second half of the verse or the next verse because what happened was so horrible, 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 horrible. The next morning, the Levite wakes up, opens the door, and there lies the concubine. And she's dead. And he takes her body, and he puts it on the donkey, and he, le- he and his male servant and the two donkeys leave town. 
Eventually, they make their way back to Ephraim, and he is so angry. The laws of hospitality were violated. His concubine was murdered in the most brutal way imaginable. He almost lost his own life, and he decides something must be done. So he writes a letter to all 12 tribes, basically to the civil leaders, and he says, here's what happened, and he outlines the story. And then he hires some servants to take these letters to all 12 tribes, and he thinks to himself, wait a minute, like, okay, nobody's going to do anything because of a letter. Like, nobody knows who I am. So then he comes up with an idea, and he chops his concubine up into 12 different pieces, wraps the body parts up, attaches them to the letter, and sends them out all over the nation of Israel. So two or three days later, the, like the mayors basically of these cities, you know, they're like, hey, the mail's arrived, you got a letter and a package, and he opens it up and there's like a head or an arm or a hand or who knows, you know. And this letter explains this horrible, horrible deed that happened. Well, the nation is outraged. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, we have sunk to an all-time low. You know, we had the Canaanites and the, uh, all this stuff, but I mean, things have been bad between the tribes at times. But this is horrible that one tribe would do such a thing to another. So they gather together, and here's what the writer tells us. Everyone who saw it, like who saw the body parts and heard the story, was saying to one another, such a thing, in other words, we've reached a brand new low, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, in other words, they're like, this is so horrible. Just imagine. We must do something. So speak up. So messages get sent out, and they all decide they're going to put together an army. And they're going to show up outside the gates of Gibeah and say, we demand that justice be done. So bring out the perpetrators of this crime. So they send out this message, and here's what happened. It says, then all of Israel... From Dan to Beersheba, that's the furthest city in the north and furthest city in the south, and from the land of Gilead, came together as one and assembled before the Lord at Mizpah. So they send out this message. They're like, okay, we need representatives from every tribe, every city, uh, armed representatives, because we're going to show up in force outside the gates of Gibeah and demand that justice be done. And so they, when they gathered at Mizpah, all the, all the men, they take this oath that no matter what happens, we will never allow any of our daughters to marry a Benjamite, ever. And then they, they marched in and they stood outside the gates of Gibeah and they demanded that the Benjamites turn over the perpetrators of this crime. Well, a, a letter and a body part and, and later letters were sent to the, the, le- the leaders of the Benjamites. So they, they knew what was going to happen. So all the Benjamites called together all their men and they line up outside the city of Gibeah and they're like, no, we are not going to give you the perpetrators of this crime they're Benjamites, for one thing. Like, we're going to just judge them by our laws. So you got this armed conflict on the verge of breaking out. And sure enough, messages get sent back and forth, and representatives from the 11 tribes of Israel attack the Benjamites in the city of Gibeah. And on the first day of battle, the Benjamites actually drive the 11 nations away in defeat. And tens of thousands of men from uh, the 11 tribes of Israel, they're, they're killed in battle. And the Benjamites are victorious. Second day, same thing happens. Tens of thousands of men are slaughtered in battle. And once again, the perpetrators of this crime are not brought to justice. Looks like they're going to win. But on the third day of battle, they finally come up with a strategy. And the Israelites pretend to retreat. And so the Benjamites, they follow them far from the city. And another group of men like ambush the city and they started on fire. And the Benjamites 
you know, who are following the first group, they look back, they see the city is burning, and so they panic, they turn, you know, try to head back to the city, and the battle turns, and at this point, for the 11 tribes, like, their bloodlust is up, they've had enough, they are angry, they, they kill all the guys, they burn the city to the ground, kill all the men, women, children, every animal, and then they go city by city throughout the, the tribe of Benjamin. And they burn every city to the ground. And they kill every man and every woman and every child and every animal until the whole region of Benjamin is just a smoldering, smoking, smelly, horrible battlefield wasteland. Everything is dead. But some of the Benjamites from the original army that had been surrounding Gibeah to defend it, 600 of them escaped into the desert into an area that was really remote from the area of battle. And for, for four months they stayed there because they're you know, scared to death to come back because they don't know what's going to happen to them. Well, after kind of the bloodlust fades and the adrenaline begins to diminish, several weeks go by, and now it dawns on the leaders of the 11 tribes like, oh no, what have we done? We just wiped out an entire tribe of Israel. Now instead of 12 tribes, we've got 11 tribes. And they begin to repent. They're like, God, we're sorry, you know. Oh no, there's been this genocide and we've eliminated an entire tribe because they killed everybody and everything and burned down every city. And finally, someone raises their hand and says, well, actually, there are 600 of them left. They fled to the desert in a remote area. Perhaps we can coax them back out. And somebody else raises their hand and says, well, yeah, but they're all guys. They're all male and they won't have any wives. And we all made an oath that we wouldn't let any of our daughters marry a Benjamite man. So what should we do? And somebody else raises their, man, their hand and they go, were there any cities that were kind of non-committal you know, to this battle? Any cities that didn't send out representatives? And someone says, yeah, yeah, you know what? I don't think there's anybody here from Jabesh Gilead. And they're like, oh, any representatives from Jabesh Gilead here? And nobody raises their hand. So the 11 tribes put together a smaller army. They send them to the city of Jabesh Gilead with these instructions. Kill every man, every woman, burn the city, but save the young girls, all the young girls that you can. Kidnap them, bring them back, and we'll give those women to the men who are coming in from the desert as wives so we don't completely annihilate the tribe of Benjamin. You should read your Bible. This is like crazy. It's just sickening. So that's what they do. They raise the city, kidnap all the young girls, bring them back, they coax the men out of the desert, and they're like, hey, we're so sorry. We've got some good news and some bad news for you. Okay? Uh, bad news, we killed your parents and your brothers and sisters and burned your cities to the ground. Good news is we've kidnapped some women, you know, and we think maybe they'll be your wives, whether you're compliant or not. But there's some more bad news because like, there's 600 of you guys, and we've only got about 400 women, so not everyone gets a new wife. And then someone says, well, I got an idea. In a few days, there's this festival up in Shiloh, and as part of the festival, all the young women, the ladies in that area, they would come out and they would do a dance in the field. We'll let these men that don't have a wife hide in the woods, and then when these young women do their dance in the field, the men can run out and kidnap for themselves a wife. And we'll tell their fathers they haven't violated an oath because they didn't give their daughters to be married. They were actually kidnapped, and we'll tell the fathers it's a good thing because you know now we're gonna, that's how we're going to save the tribe of Benjamin. So that's what they do. These guys hide in the woods. The young ladies come out and do their spring festive dance. And, and these Benjamites that were left out of the wife lottery, they, the first time around, they, they run out 
of the woods, and they're like, hey, go grab myself a woman. You know, and they get these, uh, these 600 guys, all of them finally, with wives basically thrown over their shoulders, head back into the smoldering ruins of the land of Benjamin to begin once again populating the scorched earth. And then the book of Judges ends. <laughs> like there, there's no heroes, nothing good. Some of you guys were raised in Christian homes, like where your parents would read you a Bible story at night before bed. <laughs> They never read this one, did they? You know, hey, Dad, I want to hear the one about the chainsaw and the concubine. No, no, no. We'll say that that's a Halloween story. You know, we'll do that one for Halloween or something. Now, as the writer of Judges ends with this unbelievable story, he makes a comment, and here's the comment. This is the final verse of the book of Judges. He says, "In those days, there was no king in Israel, and because there was no king, no final authority." Because there was no one to impose the law of God on the nation. Those days there was no king in Israel. So, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Or to put it a different way, in those days there was no binding moral consensus. Nothing that said this is right, this is wrong. So people followed their own moral compass. Everybody did just exactly what they thought was right. And the strange thing about that story like, you could go back, you can read through the story, or I could retell it, but at every point along the way, every single character did exactly what they thought was the right thing to do. But when you stand back from all those right decisions, it's chaos. I'm like, the men of Gibeah were like, hey, we don't like strangers, you know, this is our town. Don't we have the right to decide who stays here and who doesn't? Yeah. Don't we? Yeah, we do. Send that guy out here, you know, we're going to teach him a lesson. And then when our reputation gets back, no more strangers. That's how we're going to protect our city from strangers. We're going to humiliate him to the point he will never come back and none of his friends will ever come back as well. Don't we have a right to do that? Absolutely. So they're pounding on the door and the Levite's like, well, you know, honey, if it weren't for you, you know, if you hadn't run off in the first place and if your dad hadn't been this game thing where we couldn't leave till noon and, and you know, we kind of passed through this area unharmed. So it's kind of your fault, you know. And I hate to hate to see do this, but you know, don't know what's going to happen. But here, take her. Besides, she's just a woman. She's just property, and you're the one that kind of got me here. I mean, that's the right thing to do. And then when she's murdered, there has to be justice. So how am I going to get people's attention? Well, I can't just write a letter. Hey, some really bad stuff happened to me. And it's like, oh, sorry to hear that. You know, bad stuff happens all the time. So I'm going to chop her body up to get people's attention. And the whole nation comes and demands justice. That's the right thing to do. And the Benjamites were like, hey, wait a minute, you can't just come in here and take our people. You know, they're Benjamites. So the right thing to do is for us to defend them. And Israel thinks, well, it's the right thing to do to teach Gibeah a lesson, and we're going to teach the whole tribe a lesson. That's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do find some wives for these guys out in the desert. So we've got to find them some wives. So, you know, Jabesh Gilead, they didn't participate. You know, they had the opportunity. So the right thing to do is to teach them a lesson. Save their young women Give them to the men coming in from the desert. It's like at every point along the way, you could kind of just drop in, isolated from everything else, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And who are you to tell them any different? And here's the thing, and here's why we're going to talk about that, because there's some of that in you. There's some of that in me. There's something in me that wants to say, wait, 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 wait. It's my life. I, I can do what I want to do. You know, you manage your life and your family. I'm managing my life and my family. It's what's right for me, whether or not it's right for you. 
In fact, that's kind of the, the unspoken sort of underbelly part of the American dream, right? We want the freedom to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, with whom we want to do it. That's the American dream, you know? And, and I'm, I want to be so autonomous that I can do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, and I don't want anyone else telling me what to do. Now, because we're civilized and because we're Americans, uh, we kind of add one little condition. As long as it doesn't what? Hurt anybody. Yeah, right. Now, there are a lot of problems with this, and this is what we're going to talk about for the next few weeks. But I just kind of want to get your mind going for a minute here. See, this may sound kind of good and idealistic and you know, our culture preaches it and people sing about it and stuff like that. You're talking about it in the abstract. It's my life. It's my choice. It's my, you can't tell me. But you never find people with real life, real world experience preaching that message. Like you, you never see a fifth grade teacher on Friday say to her class, well, class, you know, before we dismiss for the weekend, just remember, the key to happiness is just do what you want, when you want, with whom you want. And don't let anyone tell you what to do, boys and girls. See you Monday, right? You don't see a parole officer explaining that. You don't hear a judge preaching this because people who live on the consequences side of the equation, they know better. Now, one reason it doesn't work is, is a, a presupposition error. That the thing that we want to tack on to the end, it just doesn't work. The whole idea that I'm going to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, where I want, as long as I don't hurt anybody, that's impossible. So you can't do what's right in your own eyes without eventually hurting someone. And the reason it's impossible is because eventually you hurt you. And you may want to write this down, but you are someone. Okay? And, and so if you do what's right in your eyes and you hurt you, you have hurt someone. You hurt you. But it's not just you that you hurt. You hurt the people with you. That's why, why parents freak out about their kids' friends all the time, you know? And our kids go, oh, yeah, but I'm not going to, and I'm not going to. And they're like, yeah, but if you're with them when they do, you know, you're going to get hurt as well. And not only that, you hurt the people who care about you. If you've got somebody that cares about you, parent, a friend, you know, a spouse, you can't possibly hurt you without hurting somebody else. It's impossible. You can't do what you want, when you want, where you want, with whom you want, and not hurt anybody. And then what about this? You hurt the people coming after you. And some of you know this firsthand because the people who came before you hurt you. Maybe a divorce or an affair or an addiction, you know, whatever. But at some point along the way, somebody decided, well, I'm just going to do what I want, when I want, where I want, when, with whom I want. And it's nobody else's business. And they forgot to factor you in. And they would have said, well, but it's not hurting anybody. But it hurt you every single day of your life. And you've been living with the consequences of somebody deciding, you can't tell me what to do. So it's a myth. It doesn't work. And here's the really strange thing, especially if you're a Christian. Like, why would we aspire to that anyway? Why would anybody aspire to the bottom of the barrel? You know, I, I can do what I want when I want with whom I want. I'm just going to devolve into chaos personally and nobody can stop me. Why would you even want to do that? What's the win? How come we never hear this? I should be able to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, as long as it helps somebody. Right? Where's that? Why wouldn't we aspire to greatness? Why wouldn't we harness our passions to make the world a better place? Why wouldn't we look up instead of looking down? 
Why wouldn't we decide to do as much as we can instead of trying to get away with as much as we can get away with? What is that? See, because in the end, we're all hypocrites. We're all hypocrites because when disaster strikes, we all want help. When we do what is right in our eyes and we dismiss God and then our world falls apart, we pray. And one of the interesting things is, that we're going to find in the book of Judges, every time the nation of Israel disobeyed God and experienced disaster and turned their eyes to God and said, we need help, God, who had been ignored, God, who had been embarrassed by His people, God, who had been disobeyed, God who had been abandoned for Baal and other idols, the very same God stepped into the life of the nation and He delivers. And the great news is, no matter where you are in that cycle, that same God, who Jesus invited us to call Him Father, He will step into the chaos. Even the chaos that you created by ignoring that very same God. So here's the question. And here's where we're going to go for the next few weeks. If you were God, how would you respond to a group of people that had decided, I'm going to do what I want, when I want, where I want, with whom I want, and nobody's going to tell me what to do? How would you respond if you were that God? I mean, think about it. If you were God, and you knew that every man for himself ultimately isolates a man from himself, and it isolates that man from everybody else, Like, what would you do? What would you say? What could we expect God to say? If God really is a God who loves us, and if God really is a heavenly Father, how would we expect Him to respond? Here's the thing, to me, that makes this all so interesting. In a few weeks, our nation is going to pause and is going to celebrate the birth of a king. And we're all going to pause and we're going to go, wow, Jesus and Christmas and you know King and Star and Bethlehem. There's going to be like this pause in our chaotic life and we're going to celebrate the birth of a king in a nation that much like Israel would be quick to say, we have no king. We don't want a king. I don't want anyone else telling me what to do. It's so interesting. The celebration of the birth of a king in a nation that seems more intent than ever on doing what's right in its own eyes. It's interesting. Now that's what we're going to talk about next week. Part two of Right in the Eye. Would you stand with me now as we close in prayer? Father, as we reflect on this, this horrible, horrible story of just the way things devolve when we turn away from you and just the chaos that ensues. Some of us have experienced that in our own lives, God. We've just said, I I don't want anyone else telling me what to do. I I can do whatever I want. Lord, I pray that we'd be open because we all have that. Like, God, it's not, most of us, it's not super overt. It's It's not a big thing, but there's little parts of our heart that we're just like, yeah, that's my decision. You do you, I'll, I'll do me. Lord, just touch that part of us, that part that just wants to ignore you. Lord, soften our hearts so that we would know what it is that we need to just surrender over to you, God. Give us wisdom to know what that is, what next step is that we need to take. And give us the courage to take it. 
And we ask all these things now in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week. Thank you.